0: Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do so from an authentically Catholic perspective.
0: Today's guest will once again be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We have returning again our reliable source of information, Dr. Paul Carson. He is an infectious disease doctor, teaches at a public health program at North Dakota State University, and also serves as a consultant to the North Dakota Department of Public Health. And we're going to talk about updates again regarding the pandemic and their very recent suggestions about what we need to do to open up the country.
1: Well, Paul, let's start with uh, a comment and really a question from a listener uh, from the great state of Ohio and Cincinnati. Our listener, Amber, writes, uh, some nice things. Just wanted to say hi and thanks for the awesome COVID info on Dr. Doctor. Clearly, she's heard when you've been on here, Paul. Um, (laughs) But let's go to her question. And she says, as we hopefully approach relaxing of social distancing, one thing that has not been addressed that I'm sure a lot of listeners are curious about it's what the experts would say about visiting family, grandparents, friends, etc. cetera. Small gatherings, but potentially higher risk people like grandparents. And then she goes on also healthcare workers who may or may not be seeing COVID patients, uh, but who have a higher chance of exposure. Blessings and thanks again. Well, Amber, thank you for your question. What do you think about that, Paul? I think she's right. And a lot of our listeners are wondering about how we ever take those little steps.
2: Well, uh, as is, seems typical, your listeners are very smart people and ask these really hard questions, and this is kind of <laughs> one of the questions I really want to avoid the most answering. <laughs> um, so I, I, to me, this is, is going to be, I think, one of the most challenging things we deal with. Um, because under any scenario, I think... Um, Even as we start to relax things more and more, there is not really any scenario until we get to a vaccine or herd immunity where we say the most vulnerable um, are okay to have uh, everybody come visit. And so for a grandma and grandpa, certainly um, our family members who are older and have underlying comorbidities. those who are in the nursing home, these are going to be, these are going to remain restricted. I think until we're really seeing things cool off and, um, uh, that's just, uh, that's just painful. I have two parents in an assisted living facility. They've been essentially on lockdown for several weeks now. And, uh, we're bemoaning when we're going to be able to kind of get together and see each other. I do think, um, you can look at, uh, things that are small gatherings. I've already started talking with my friends, you know, as things loosen up, Hey, what do you think about getting together on the patio in the backyard? You know, 10 feet apart from each other, bring your own stuff. Um, and, uh, um, you know, we can socialize and visit and you can imagine that happening with, you know, family members as well. Um, I think, you know, we, we could think about uh, if we do have some vulnerable family members like our grandparents, Um, that maybe everyone masks, everyone, uh, you know, masks when you do that. Um, I also think there are some other things, you know, that we could do to try and, we're not going to be able to make this risk zero, but we can hopefully diminish it. So, uh, again, um, looking at, can we visit like with a little bit of distance between us? Let's make sure everybody does hand hygiene right before we all start to visit. Um, let's make sure we're just absolutely fastidious about everyone, uh, monitoring themselves for any hint or whiff of early symptoms and they're out you know they they can't they can't come visit so i do think we can start doing this but i do think the very the the most vulnerable are in the nursing home you know the the immunosuppressed we're going to have to really think hard about that and it's going to be a while before we can loosen up that much you know this
1: is not theoretical i mean i'm certainly seeing it almost every day in my practice of obstetrics and patients will say to me it's the same scenario they'll say my parents have been, you know, quarantined for 14 days. So we're bringing the baby home tonight and it's okay for them to come over because they've been quarantined. And I have to, I have to explain, yeah. that's not the problem. You've exactly. just been in the most high risk environment there is the hospital. And you're mm-hmm. going to take yourselves and your little darling home and potentially infect your grandparents. It's not about them infecting you, but
2: absolutely right. That's it is a absolutely tough position
1: right. to take because you yeah. sound, you sound mean when you say, yeah. for your grandparents' sake, don't bring yeah. them around. It's
2: you quiet. know, we, we healthy young or whatever, uh, you know, we're the threat to them. And, and I, I help at a nursing home, and I just remind everybody there every day, all of the workers walking through that front door, you're the one that will bring this disease into the residence there. So we have to just do everything possible to not let that happen. Mm-hmm.
0: And, Paul, as we're doing that in our practice, you know, some people, what was it, Monday, the New York Times took it upon themselves to diss uh, dermatologists who were still seeing patients. I think they have the impression that all we do is cosmetic work and we don't do anything with cancer. But I had a patient today. You know, I think our office is pretty low risk because of how we're self-monitoring, taking temperatures of everybody who comes in the building, including workers, isolating patients in a room alone. And yet I had this patient today, transplant patient. So they're at a hundred times the risk for skin cancer, not a hundred percent, a hundred times. And they're at risk for, you know, they're immunocompromised because of Mm. their medications. Mm. And when I was asking my routine question is, so what would you be doing today if you weren't here? Oh, we try to get out to Walmart every day. (laughs) You know, he's around (laughs) 80 years old. (laughs) <laughs> Immunocompromised and that's what he and his wife do every day. And from what I've heard, the parking lots are packed there. So people are allowed to do that, but they're not supposed to come to doctors except for dire need. Is there something out of balance there? Yeah,
2: there sure is. That's that's completely out of balance. I, I think we can manage these, you know, clinic visits um, probably with a pretty good modicum of safety. And I'm really, I'm already concerned about what's, what's happening with our routine clinical care. We've just seen, we've seen our immunization rates tank in the state of North Dakota. We're writing up a, we're writing up a little brief on this to submit to morbidity and mortality weekly. Um, they have just fallen off the cliff and, uh, you know,
0: Will they catch up?
2: Will they catch up? Exactly. Will we get them back? Will we catch it up? And and actually you sent that
0: to me and I'm using that data for something else.
2: (laughs) Okay. And yeah, my dad was just calling me today. He's in lockdown. He's uh, 84. And he says, I've got these things on my arm. I'm kind of wondering if they could be a melanoma. And I'm like, well, you know, that's probably something we should look into. Send me a
0: picture, Paul. I'll be happy to give you my two
2: cents. I'm going to do that. But (laughs) I I agree. And, uh, And then to have that sort of disconnect in your patient there that's, uh, he's go. he's like, that's his hobby going to Walmart where there's all kinds of people. And he's like at the most risky. Exactly. Possible. Yeah, exactly.
1: But, but Tom, remember we had Dr. Kathleen Birchelman on a pediatric hospitalist in New York, and she was noting that kids are not coming for preventive visits. Right. And their parents are so reluctant to bring them in that when they bring them in, they're very, very sick, sicker than she would expect. Mm. Yes. Uh, so good we've, point. They've done a good job at making people afraid of health facilities but it sounds like we need to inst- instill some more fear of walmart in them which <laughs> right. personally i have a great deal of fear of walmart but that's
2: another show <laughs> we're not <laughs> dissing walmart here uh, for, for all no
0: they're, they're keeping <laughs> us supplied with lots of good things so our medical trivia question for this episode SARS-CoV-2 is a respiratory virus and americans tend to get more respiratory infections such as colds in the winter so the question is a true or false one the reason we get more respiratory infections in the winter is because we spend more time indoors close to other people. True or false? You'll we'll have to wait till the end of the show for an answer. It's a surprisingly interesting one, but we'll be back right after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Okay.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Uh, and we're here with our favorite, uh, recent favorite expert, Dr. Paul Carson. So we've been talking about this, Paul, for a long time, and uh, as we step back a little bit, what are the most—I hate to say—exciting, but important or interesting things that you've really learned about COVID virus since we started this uh, this journey?
2: I can I can touch on a couple. Uh, one would be. Um, you know, how we were all watching these various models uh, of, you know, predicting how many cases we were going to have, how much surge we were going to see in our states when that surge was going to occur. I can tell you, at least for the state of North Dakota, and I think it was true for a number of others, uh, they were just wildly wrong, wildly off. Um, And uh, um, for example, in our states, uh, we've had no surge. It's just been a flat, low, steady number of new cases each day. Um, and it's taken a few of these different modeling groups some time, but now they finally have really adjusted these. And now like for our state, they don't predict any surge. Um, and, and that we won't come anywhere close to exceeding our capacity, but they were saying by Easter, we were going to be drowning in our hospitals. Um, so that, that, that was really interesting that, uh, that some of these models that we've all been trying to look at and plan on, um, were really kind of pretty off.
0: Do we know why?
2: Uh, You know, I'm not, I'm not a mathematical modeler. I don't, you know, know that stuff very well, but clearly it has to do with the assumptions of the inputs that they put in. You know, what are the assumptions? What's the attack rate? What's the mortality rate? What's the, um, what are the mitigating factors going to do to suppress things? And I think that was, I think the big thing they got wrong is that they didn't, they didn't account for how effective the social isolation and shelter in place measures would become. Um, you know another I, I'd say interesting thing that we're learning is now there's uh, there's some s- significant studies showing that it, it's pretty clear that people are infectious probably in the one, two, or even three days before they start manifesting symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, they might be the most infectious in the day before and maybe the day of uh, their symptoms. Um, the other interesting thing that I've taken from a couple of these studies now, two of them recently published in Nature, a very prominent uh, scientific journal, is that it really also looks like um, your infectiousness really goes away fast after about day eight of symptoms. So beyond day eight to 10, um, it looks, it's very hard to get enough virus out of the person to be able to culture it. You can still find RNA, you know, the genetic material that we test for, but it just doesn't seem to be enough to actually uh, infect uh, cells, and at least in a cell culture, which is presumed to mean um, that you're you're probably not infectious. I think that's good news uh, that that infectiousness is unlikely past day eight to ten. Good,
0: because I read something just this weekend that suggested that people were even infectious after their symptoms were gone a few days.
2: Is that yeah, what what they're basing that on? I think wrongly is that you can find RNA in people out sometimes two and even three weeks later. Okay. Which doesn't
1: equate to infectiousness. Exactly. It, it, it might Good be
2: point. dead virus. I mean, you can, you can amplify RNA from, you know, inactive or dead virus. Um, but it's, it doesn't appear that it's enough or active enough to be able to infect cells.
1: Well, Very Paul, a, a friend sent me an article from, I believe it was the Washington Times, and the, the article itself is not that important. But the concept in that I think a lot of us are groping for perspective and where we live seems to have such a dramatic impact on our perspective. So Tom and I live in the great state of Indiana. Uh, we will probably see more death from influenza than we will coronavirus. But that then we look at New York and maybe Detroit or maybe Los Angeles. It almost feels like it's a different disease and in large urban areas and non-urban areas. I'm not sure what that means if it's even true. But how do how do we How do we somehow reconcile that when we think about, uh, and we'll talk later, I know about opening states and easing up the lockdown. It seems like there should, there can't be a universal approach to that.
2: Yeah, I I think you're exactly right, Chris. I, I, you know, I don't, I think you and I both know it's not a different disease, but it sure behaves differently in densely populated urban centers where you've got, you know, uh, more people per square mile, you know, by, Logarithmic differences compared to a state like <laughs> North Dakota or maybe even Indiana yeah. um, and so that's uh, that plays out very very differently and and came very, very close to overwhelming number of uh, new york hospitals we 're just not anywhere close to that here i 'm curious what you 're seeing in Indiana and in your hospitals there. I suspect you 're not really uh, stretched that yeah we 're either
1: you know we 're seeing cases certainly mm-hmm. and we 're seeing deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just saw a patient who's uh, grandfather was the first death in our county, mm. uh, and so too much to ignore that it doesn't match up with what you see on the news. right So what we
0: uh, have here in Indiana, Paul, is that as of um, today, we had two thousand eight hundred ninety-five ventilators. Three quarters of them are still available. Mm. We also have two thousand nine hundred forty-eight ICU beds. Forty-six uh, percent of them are still available. Twenty-five percent are being used for COVID.
2: Right. So you have a lot of capacity. Yeah. Yet. Yes. And and I, I'm curious if your curve is, ours curve is flat. I mean, we haven't had to, you know, we've talked about flatten the curve, flatten the curve. We didn't even have to do that in North Dakota. Our curve has remained uh, flat. I don't know if you searched. Ours
0: went up, then it was going down, and then today it spiked up. Yeah. Oh. And we don't know uh, why.
2: So, you know, what, the, what, the other thing that I, I actually told our health department, please put on our website uh, when you post here, numbers of tests done each day, because it's highly dependent on how much testing is going on each day. Yep. Um,
1: and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil our trivia question either, hmm. but it seems like we haven't heard anything about Miami. And in my mind, Miami is a Southern New York. Um, not exactly the same. I'm not a population expert, but hmm. it's a big, densely populated city.
2: It is. I, I've heard some people say they think that's going to be the next hotspot. I haven't personally looked at their numbers or their incidence curve uh, 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 but I have heard people speculating that will that that will be the next um, the next uh, really uh, hot spot. Um, but it it begs that question that is the trivia question, which we'll get to soon. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So, Paul, one thing that we were texting back and forth about um, this morning is something that's on a lot of people's minds, and it's like, why weren't we better prepared for this? You know, I've had you know the editor, the Lineker Quarterly. Barbara Golder say to me, "You know nobody could have really predicted that it was going to be this bad and could have been that well prepared yet uh, the john Johns Hopkins University said that on their on their website for global health preparedness, no country was better prepared for a pandemic as of last year. Hmm. How do you make sense of that
2: uh, I'm curious what they what they were looking at when they said that, but i, um, I and I, I maybe uh, um, take a little uh, uh, different view than Dr. Golder. I think we've talked about this in infectious disease and in public health like almost every year for decades. <clears throat> the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control has uh, regularly put out pandemic uh, preparedness plans. The, the thought was, is it was going to be a pandemic influenza strain, a strain that would, um, you know, be something like the 1918 or uh. 1957 strain. That's, that's what we've been planning for. But the same principles apply to something like this the the concern has been that it would be a respiratory virus that was unique that we weren't immune to and would sweep through the population and potentially have high mortality and there was several drills done on this over the last decade um uh, simulations that ran through how prepared we were and several reports that raised big red flags saying we're we're not ready with for this so you know our ventilator capacity isn't there our ppe isn't there Um, there's other things that came out that just shocked me with this, like our, our, our ability to have the plastic nylon swabs to collect the samples, you know, not having enough of those and being dependent on one supply chain out of Lombardy, Italy, where they make them, you know, uh, how fragile that supply chain is. I just got off a conference call with our health department where we are, very much wringing our hands about when we're going to run out of personal protective equipment in our state cash that's being used by a lot of our nursing homes and critical access hospitals. And I, I, I'm just asking myself, like, how could this have happened? How, how could we have been drilling for this, talking about this? And here we are um, just kind of sucking air on, on a lot of these issues. And I, I don't point my finger at any particular person or administration or whatever. This has been going on, you know, these, these issues have been through several administrations.
0: It's bipartisan.
2: Yeah, it is bipartisan and it's over several years, but it does seem to me that we as humans, you know, are creatures of kind of what's the immediate threat in front of me that I pay attention to this sort of far off thing out of sight, out of mind. It's, it's not urgent to me right now. We'll kick that can down the road a little bit further.
0: So, do you think that South Korea and Taiwan were so ready for this because they learned from their previous experience that caught them unaware?
2: That's what I've I've heard some colleagues uh, suggest that SARS really scared them. Uh, They they saw how uh, um, devastating that could be. Uh, They were living it. They it was a that had a high mortality, and so it was a very frightening disease. And you hear like. for example, Taiwan has established this network of what they call fever clinics, where they rapidly assess people um, with any kind of, uh, you know, viral-like illness and, and then put into place uh, isolation, quarantine-type processes. They also seem to be able to ramp up their testing ca- capability very quickly. South Korea is able to do, is like over a million tests a week, you know, for a country that size. I mean, they're in far better shape than- And
0: they than kept they their businesses and schools open, didn't they?
2: Yeah, their school was, was closed when it hit by a natural break, but they, okay. they have, um, they've let them phase back into school. They did not clamp down on their businesses. They've really done this, their control with fairly traditional public health measures kind of uh, on steroids. I mean, they've done very aggressive uh, case finding and contact tracing. They, they take it to another level.
1: But, you know, it's interesting, Our um, and I, I don't think it's uniquely American, but it is somewhat American. We we have to assign blame, don't we? Yeah. I say that as a biased practitioner of obstetrics and gynecology no. and that we often have bad natural <laughs> outcomes. And we as a society have this unquenchable thirst to assign blame for that bad outcome. Is Is there a part to this in terms of the preparedness that that look, pandemics are going to happen. They have happened since the beginning of time, quite literally. Um, preparedness may be um, an ability to react, and, but we're not going to prevent pandemics. We're not going to change the fundamentals of infectious disease, are we?
2: You're absolutely right, Chris. I mean, these pandemics—they're going to occur. Uh, they will continue to occur. Um, but I, I do hope that we will learn because I don't think you know it, it's not been in any American's collective consciousness, uh, you know, about this. I mean, 1918 is kind of too far back for any of us to really have a handle on what this uh, is like. I, I do hope that we will learn from this, at least for my children, my and maybe my grandchildren's sake, that, uh, you know, we will be more ready for the next one.
1: You know, Tom and I have gotten beat up a little bit on this show for our speaking in favor or the perception that we spoke in favor of influenza vaccines Hmm. Uh, it'll be interesting to see as the next flu season rolls around tom maybe we're going to be heroes
2: Uh, wait wait a minute you you guys got beat up for promoting the flu vaccine Uh, i I
0: think chris and andrew have a patient population where vaccination isn't as popular as in other patient
2: populations they need to listen to our first podcast Uh, they do
0: we we agree that that's what he's talking about getting some blowback from those kind of episodes that's right that's right paul you you uh gave me a little earlier this week, a bit of wisdom that you heard from Father Mike Schmitz that might benefit our patients. Would you, do you remember that quote?
2: Yeah, I, my family and I, we were sitting down and listening to uh, some of Father Michael Schmitz's podcasts, which we really enjoy him a great deal and learn a lot from him. And he said in relation, in relation, especially to this um, COVID-19 outbreak, he said, don't let your sphere of interest go beyond your sphere of influence. So we might be curious about this, we might want to have a lot of knowledge, we might want to be an armchair quarterback on this, but what do we really uh, have as far as influence to change government policies, to change the healthcare system, to change public health? And I think, you know, I just think it's true of a lot of things. I have some friends that get pretty worked up over and I, I can tend to get pretty worked up over, uh, certain issues. And then, you know, to sit back and say, what do I really have power to change here, or influence over other than through my prayers, uh, which I think we can all do. And he encouraged everybody to be praying a lot about this. Um, but I, I think that was a bit of wisdom, uh, on this.
0: I think that applies to all of life. I think yeah, that's, I, I agree. that's great. Paul, back to some fundamental public health, because there are a couple of words that we hear often uh, with regard to the pandemic, and, and that is the talk of suppressing the disease and mitigating the spread of the disease. What's the difference and what are we doing right now as a nation?
2: Yeah. So, and you could even throw in there the earlier one, you know, containment. So things start with containment. If it's a local, it's not a pandemic, it's in one spot, we try and contain it there. If it breaks out beyond there and starts to spread as an epidemic to a wider geographic area or, or you know, in our current circumstance, a pandemic everywhere, um, then things often move towards mitigation, which is uh, really trying to um, diminish the severe impact of the disease. And uh, so it's focusing there on slowing, not necessarily stopping the epidemic spread, uh, especially for things like this, which is quite contagious. Suppression is a a goal that aims at actually driving it out to, to eliminating it. Um, that was the goal with the original SARS, <clears throat> uh, um, in part because it was so lethal and also in, because it did not appear quite as infectious, and it was successful. So to suppress something, you really need to drive what's called the reproductive number less than one. That means for every person that gets sick, how many more people do you infect if you infect less than one person? So if you know, each person uh, infects less than another person, it'll eventually extinguish. The epidemic will go away. If it's more than one, it will continue to grow uh, over time. Um, this one is going to be very hard to suppress. The reproductive number is thought to be around 2.5. Some estimates put it even fair amount higher than that. Um, so if you've got two and a half, three, maybe some estimates are you know, three and a half or more people getting infected from each case, that, that's really difficult to suppress.
0: So our efforts right now are basically mitigating this universal social distancing closing of certain businesses, et cetera.
2: Right. Trying to diminish the impact, trying to, um, you know, I think our original goals were the right ones, which is trying to prevent a surge in the healthcare system that they couldn't manage. Mm. Kind of feel like we've, we've accomplished that. Yes. Um, and be to God. thank Exactly. Thanks be to God. And I, um, then I think, you know, uh, right concomitant with that is really trying to protect the most vulnerable. That's turning out to be a challenge you know, trying to really keep it out of nursing homes and congregate living facilities is hard. Um, and uh, um, so the, that's, our, that's our goals, is trying to really decrease the deaths, decrease the severe, severity of this.
0: Paul, before we go on, we're going to take that rec- required break for EWTN and be back with more of your wisdom and advice after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Doctor. We're back with more of Paul Carson here on Dr. Doctor. And, Paul, something that you and I have been very interested in, along with um, our our colleague, uh, Tony Flood, the philosopher, is whether or not the treatment of the pandemic is worse than the disease itself. And, in fact, uh, a former lieutenant governor of New York wrote in the New York Post this week, quote, it's too bad none of the models consider the deaths that will be caused by unemployment and we might add as physicians and by patients missing their, their medical checkups uh, they're monitoring uh, and they're checking for other disease. So what do you think of her statement, Paul, it's too bad none of the models consider other these, any of the other causes of deaths or the collateral damage due to social distancing?
2: I think she's spot on. I think she's, she's spot on with this. And, and you know, we, as health professionals and uh, we in public health should not look at one e- one disease as being sort of insular and the only thing to consider, because the the management of this certainly is going to have far-reaching implications. And uh, you and I were sharing some papers recently. You know, one of which was uh, a paper from the Lancet a, a few years ago that looked at the rate of suicide increase for every yes. percentage point that goes up in unemployment. And it's about 1% increase in suicide for, for every percent uh, of unemployment that's added. And, uh, you know, there's some projections that we may hit over 30% unemployment with this. I mean, that will have a, a, a tremendous impact on uh, numbers of suicides. Um, we looked Paul, at. We
1: were, we were talking earlier offline, yeah. but give our listeners perspective about nationally the number of deaths of suicide.
2: Yeah, it's about forty-eight thousand uh, plus uh, a year. It's been going up steadily, but uh, you know, if you think about adding 10, 15, 20, you know, percent, twenty-five uh, percent increase on top of that, uh, that's that's really substantial. So that's
0: almost five hundred suicide increase per one percentage increase in unemployment. You're faster
2: at math than me, but yes, uh, I think that sounds right. But
1: it's a a pandemic of sorts that's a secondary secondary phenomenon, but much too important to overlook.
0: Paul, what do you think if instead of these websites just having the curves for COVID cases and COVID deaths, it also had curves for increase in addictions, increase in suicide, increase in depression and anxiety, increase in cardiovascular deaths due to this? Do you think we might view it differently?
2: I, I think we would, and I think we should. Um, I, this is not to say that what we, we've done recently on this was wrong. Uh, this was a epidemic that we didn't have a, a good grasp on and, and what its potential was, and the potential for this could have been very dire. But um, but I think we need to be asking these hard questions right now and striking an appropriate balance between the measures we take to contain COVID and the uh, harms that may come from some of those measures.
0: We are big in the Catholic Church on subsidiarity, on local over national or regional, if at all possible, if that's mm-hmm. if it can be handled then. So in my home state of Michigan, where we actually have a vacation home, right now, Michigan residents are not allowed to travel between their permanent residence and a vacation home if they're both in the state of Michigan. I, being an Indiana resident, could travel there. I am not. I have other things mm-hmm. to do. The, the entire state is being treated the same way and the speaker of the house there spoke against the governor saying we should be prioritizing safe versus unsafe activities not quote essential versus non-essential what do you think about the debates going on among michiganders
2: yeah so uh, you know a couple things there i mean there's what's the saying Uh, that all politics is local i'm starting to kind of think all (laughs) epidemiology is local uh (laughs) in some ways i mean because we see these we see the epidemic playing out very differently in big urban centers compared to rural areas like my state and, and like, you know, the upper peninsula of Michigan. Um, and so treating, uh, for example, every place in Michigan, like it's Detroit or my state of uh, North Dakota, like it's New York, is just uh, um, ludicrous. It's, it's inappropriate. And uh, um, and so I think we need to be, Uh, granting some subsidiary uh, subsidiarity to the local public health officials presuming they're doing their job which is they really need to be doing good surveillance for the disease but if they're doing that and you're finding that the the um, epidemic is at a much lower boil if you will than some of the urban centers then you treat it differently and you you don't maybe don't have to clamp down nearly as tight Um, there was another question you had in there Um, Safe
0: versus, unsafe.
2: safe versus unsafe. Yeah, yes. all right. So I, that's, I think, an, another question we're going to have to start looking hard at, like what what jobs, what businesses, what activities at schools could be done in a more safe way? I think we have to come to the realization that we, can, we cannot believe that there's zero, that we can achieve zero risk. But Uh, we can achieve hopefully safer practices uh, with a gradation of risk that's much less. And so what kind of jobs can be done where we're spaced out more? How can we conduct classrooms where we're spaced out more? Um, What kind of assemblies are acceptable with what kind of numbers and in what kind of space? Uh, Those are the questions I think we need to be asking now and I think are starting to be asked on, on how we turn things back on.
0: Yeah, not college football games, because you are rump to rump with the person next to you at some of those. So I don't know how those are going to be spaced out.
2: And, you know, you're, uh, um, uh, you know, we're from a state here where Bison football is like huge. uh, And uh, um, that's going to be a real painful thing to give up. uh, Well, I I mean, uh,
1: football is one thing, at least it's outdoors. Imagine, will we ever have uh, basketball again? Right,
2: right, Uh, right
1: sitting immediately adjacent to one another indoors, um, yeah. just, you know, your mind can take off so quickly with the, yeah. play- now,
0: the immediately before we recorded this on on Thursday evening before the Saturday 's being um, aired, uh, the president was on with his coronavirus task force about their their recommended plans, staged plans for reopening the economy in various states and, and thankfully they did give you know the, the local mantra governors Uh, are basically in charge of states, different states will open at different rates, all a good thing. But they talked about a three-phase opening. And the the first phase, I think, required that, among other things, there'd been a downward trend in cases for 14 days, along with the ability to rapidly test people, especially at-risk healthcare workers. And in phase one, the things that could um, open up, they said, yeah, you can return to work, but work from home if possible, still avoid non-essential travel, still keep cl- schools closed, but restaurants and gyms can reopen if reopen if they adhere to distancing guidelines. And I'm, I'm thinking along with that, if restaurants can open, certainly churches. What do you think about phase right. one, Paul, from the little uh, yeah. we know about it so far?
2: Yeah, I think we had, I had about five or 10 minutes to look at it before we started talking and, uh, but I think it's the right approach. I think it's the, the stepwise approach based on, Are you testing? Um, Are your cases stable or coming down? Um, And then what sorts of things do you start to open up first? Uh, You know, I'm not sure about, you know, all all of those things in that list, but I think it's a reasonable, reasonable approach. And I would put churches in in there too. I mean, if you can talk about, um, you know, uh, restaurants, and I think gyms might have even been, you know, put in there, if they can appropriately distance themselves. I think we could certainly think about that with uh, mass as well.
1: As you know, hopefully, uh, we're talking about relaxing of some of the, the distancing, and it seems to me that can't translate into a relaxing of monitoring and observation. In fact, we may need to monitor and observe even more closely, because at the first hint of an uptick, yeah, various communities would need to pull back. To Tom's point about subsidiarity. It may be different in, in Indiana and North Dakota than it is in Chicago.
2: Exactly. And, and I think that's, I do think they in outline that in the president's plan from what little I could see is that that's paired with very aggressive, very aggressive monitoring and surveillance, testing, contact tracing, case finding, quarantine and isolation. And then if you're, if you're starting to bubble up, you know, where you're getting an uptick, you ha- you might need to start clamping down on some of those measures again.
0: Well, how robust is our testing ability right
2: now? it seems like it's still variable from state to state um, uh, i we are we in North Dakota here are in a pretty good shape. I'd be curious what you're you've heard uh, there in Indiana. I hear New York now I see New York. You can actually go on that Worldometer, and yes. you can look at tests per million population. Yes. I look at that very regularly to kind of see which which states are testing the best. New York, which was in a lot of trouble a couple of weeks ago, now is I think at the top of the list. So they've obviously
0: per capita
2: per capita. Yes, so they're they're obviously uh, you know found a way to test very aggressively. I've been reading though uh, just a couple of things that make me nervous. Uh, the American Society for Microbiology put out a bulletin saying they're very nervous about. The world's supply of the reagents that we need to do these tests, you need chemicals that extract the RNA, you need uh, chemicals and primers that uh, amplify the RNA and and these are kind of universal everybody wants these now you know to to, to do this and so um, I think we 're going to have to um, keep a close rein on our testing capability and hopefully capacity. Uh, stays where it is or in, continue, actually it needs to increase. We, if we're going to ramp up the surveillance, it needs to be more. Um, we're pretty good now, but we need, we need even greater if we're going to start opening things up.
0: Phase two of the president's program would be a, a further 14 days of reduction in cases, uh, and then people can go back to work, but still they say telework if possible. Non-essential travel can resume. Schools and daycares can reopen but still prohibit visitors to senior living facilities. Uh, Large venues can operate, but with social distancing measures in place, and elective surgeries can resume. So it's interesting, elective surgery, and they have a very broad category of elective surgery, Mm. not until phase two. What do you
2: think? Yeah, I thought that was a bit interesting too. Uh, You know, my my wife is a, a radiologist who specializes in really breast radiology, breast procedures, and so, you know, they're basically shutting down screening mammography, wow. um, and that 's where they find most of their cancers and then do the biopsies and you yes. know send them on to a, a surgery so it's again what 's really elective and what's not and and i'm one I really wonder what we're going to see with a number of different um, chronic diseases, cancers um, uh, you know um, screening things that we do like what's going to happen with all this pulling back on our routine medical care that we've really honed to find things at an early stage. So might we
0: say in a couple years, wow, we should have let patients continue their medical treatment in offices with physicians during this time?
2: I'm sure somebody's going to do that. (laughs) Um, and, And that may be right. I think, you know, we were balancing this immediate need for personal protective equipment. You know, so right. do, do we need it for the elective surgeries or do we really need to save it for, you know, the COVID patients? I think but, now that we're not seeing huge surges, maybe we, we get back to work.
0: That sounds reasonable. And then phase three, uh, they said it's just a, a new normal, but continuing going back to continuing the, the hygiene that you've yep. talked about, giving people a six foot birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a Pew survey that was just reported in the last couple of days and it said that two thirds of people are more afraid of governors opening up states too soon than waiting too long. Hmm. I found that fascinating.
2: Just more anxiety about uh, us being around each other again. And uh, yes, yeah, wow, uh, that's interesting. I went, and this was a Pew survey. Just recently? Very yes, recently?
0: in the last couple of days.
2: Yeah, because uh, I mean, in my personal sphere, I hear people like, I'm, I'm so tired of this, I want to get yes. back. You know, I, that's what I'm hearing in my own sphere of influence. But uh, I'm sure we're going to be having balancing competing interests of the anxieties, you know, the people who are very afraid of this and the people who are pushing hard. I see several of our business groups here in North Dakota are pushing our governor very hard to get businesses back open.
0: And he was getting pushed the other way by and some he was people ex- to close ex- things exactly. down. Exactly, exactly.
2: That can't I mean, be a, a fun I, job.
1: I mean, I'm certainly no sociologist, but sort of uh, population behavior is interesting. That when there's a perceived crisis, you know, I think people, the citizenry, will tolerate things to a degree. But if mm-hmm. the perception of that crisis begins to fade, mm-hmm. then their willingness to to comply drops. And I think, sadly those people who need to be complying, it also drops with them. Yeah, It almost seems to me that if if we don't relax the standards for some people who may not be at risk, we may be putting the people actually who are at risk at even greater
2: risk. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah, I think that's a good observation, Chris.
1: Uh, Psychologically, as a society, we just have our limits. Right. Uh, as to yep. what
2: we, uh, well,
0: and I've been, I've reviewed, I don't know, 50, 60 articles here in the last few days. And one of them talked about that question, Chris, and it was what people are the most uh, compliant with these things. And it's exactly what Paul's been talking about, your sphere of influence. Hmm. The more uh, people in your immediate circle that have been affected by something, the more likely you are to comply. And right. most of us in our immediate circle, we don't know anybody who's hmm. had COVID or even been, um, exposed to COVID.
1: Mm-hmm. So it
0: so makes it really hard to to want to comply.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, good
0: point. Uh, Paul, there was an article that you forwarded to me from um, uh, March 16th. So it came out early from the United Kingdom, the Imperial College, and they have a COVID-19 task force there. And it said that um, they expect that, you know, if a vaccine is available in 18 months, they expect that 12 out of those 18 months, we're going to be doing some major league social distancing. And it's what I was you know, explaining earlier for those people that have seen the movie Finding Nemo. So you'll know my cultural touchstones. There's a scene in there where as a clownfish, Marlon is sitting, you know, protected within the sea anemones and he peeks out to look to see if it's safe. Oh, but then he goes back in. If he sees something, he goes out, to see if something's safe. Oh, then he pulls back in. It's that over and over until he's really sure it's safe. So I'm wondering are we possibly looking at that, you know, we'll relax and, oh, cases go up. We have to pull back into social distancing tomb again. Is that a possibility? And they said they thought 12 out of those 18 months we would be doing that.
2: Yes. I, I, think, um, I, I think that that probing, I, I've heard it referred to as stuttering measures, uh, that you'll, you'll have this sort of stuttering approach to, um, how tight we have to clamp down on things, depending on on what's what's happening on the ground, and that implies aggressive and active surveillance. I do think that's uh, where we're going to be going, and 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 I think we're going to have a lot of little experiments to see what works and what doesn't. And and I think we're we're also going to be a bit fortunate here to look. We've got a couple of examples to look ahead of us here. Um, Spain has kind of gone back to work here, right? Oh. Just kind of it. they they aren't all the way down, I mean no, and they decided, aren't. and they've decided to you know get back into their manufacturing and a number of other businesses. A lot of people have been in Europe have been critical that they they were going to kind of start that early, but we'll have a very good example ahead of us to look at Ooh, what happens yes. uh, there <laughs> and um and then China is also doing that. Now, I've heard My Mark Strand, who you've had on your show, has yes. some friends who live in Wuhan, and they're, they're talking about what's now opening up and what they're allowing them to do. And, and they're, they're slowly opening the spigot, if you will, and we'll have a very good example there uh, of, you know, what happens and how bad things flare with, you know, more aggressive monitoring and, and doing the case finding and contact tracing. So we don't have to shoot blind on this. I think we'll have a couple of examples right ahead of us.
0: That's a great point. And you just mentioned Wuhan, and I read something again this morning, I think last night, that there's some evidence that this virus may have been used in research, not manufactured by man, but being researched at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and may have escaped. What do you know about that?
2: I don't I don't know about that. I I find those sorts of things to me to be a bit circumspect. I I I would I would want to actually see actual data of what they were working on there because y- you know the the researchers that look at virology can do what are called these phylogenetic trees. They're basically like a uh RNA ancestry.com for viruses. Oh,
0: and they've done that they've shown that it is natural, it's not man-made. Right. Well, my question is is there evidence that it's one of the different agents they were working with? Like I used to work at USAMRID, U.S. Yeah. Army Medical yeah. Research Institute with Ebola yeah. years ago yeah. and other things. So those I were see. natural strains. Yeah. But what are the chances something like that could have, quote, escaped like smallpox did in, in the U.K., you know, last century? Yeah.
2: Possible. I, I suppose that's possible. I, uh, one of the things I read, you know, said just, just because you have a biosafety three facility, you know, near there doesn't mean that's what they're they're working on. You know, with the original SARS, it was quite clear after they did more investigation with that that it probably was a bat virus that made it into palm civets, which is a type Mm -hmm. of a kind of a raccoon looking kind of cat like animal that they had in their markets and eat. eat. I suspect we'll find something similar with this, but I'll I'll be honest with you, Tom. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that.
0: Paul, we've been looking for an HIV vaccine for 40 years or so, maybe less. We don't have one. Right. We are pinning great hopes. On a COVID vaccine in 18 months or less. What if we don't get it? Or are coronaviruses easier to make vaccines to than something like HIV?
2: There's reason to believe that coronaviruses are uh, easier to make a vaccine to. A uh, couple things. One is <clears throat> you can show in people that have had coronavirus, they make what we call neutralizing antibodies, antibodies that will kill the virus in, in a test tube. <clears throat> That's usually predict- predictive of protection. Uh, Second thing is, is that uh, coronaviruses have uh, some mechanisms that kind of maintain their genetic integrity. So HIV just is very sloppy at its uh, reproduction. So you get all these sort of little subspecies of HIV, even in the same person. Um, Lots and lots and lots of mutation. That doesn't seem to happen as much with coronavirus. So there's reason to be hopeful.
0: Very good. And Paul, when are you planning your next out-of-state travel?
2: (laughs) So I'm, I, I've been asked to give a lecture by the JP2 Foundation um, in Los Angeles in September and I said, guys, are you really sure that's gonna happen? So we'll see. Um, <laughs> to buy
1: the ticket or not to buy the ticket? That is the
2: question. Ex- exactly, so that's my next uh, plan travel. And then we, we had booked uh, with um, uh, Ted Sri a Holy Land tour in November. I'm really hoping we can do that.
0: Great. Well, we're going to be back with the last section of the show that includes the answer to the medical trivia question here after the break on Dr. Doctor.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And you guessed it, it's time for the answer to the medical trivia question. So just to set that up again, uh, Americans tend to get more respiratory infections like SARS or COVID-2, um, such as a cold in the winter, and this is a true or false trivia. So, Tom, take it away. True so, or false?
0: So, true or false? Do they get more in the winter because they are indoors and close to other people? Right. And the answer is false. You know, I, I, as have shown, human beings, uh, especially in the U.S., spend ninety percent of their lives, roughly, uh, sharing air in enclosed spaces with other people, whether it's winter or not. It might be a little bit more in winter, but what they have shown is that the two factors that matter most are temperature and absolute humidity. So uh, relative humidity inside will drop when the absolute humidity outside is low, unless you're humidifying. And what they've shown for influenza virus is that it is transmitted best in two different areas, less than 40% humidity or greater than 60%. So if you're in that Middle area from 40 to 60%, it does not transmit as well. So there's some suggestion that if we increase our humidity indoors in the winter, we may have a lower risk of uh, viral infections.
1: Now wait a minute. Know. My mother told me if you go out in the rain, you get sick, and that's pretty <laughs> humid when it's raining.
0: Because raindrops carry <laughs> virus, right, Paul? So, <laughs> so, Paul, what do you what do you think about this? What do you think the relationship between? And, and also, they showed that the the immune system in your nasal passages functions better uh, the more humid the air is and the warmer it is. So that wearing a mask actually will help reduce colds in the winter, not because you won't inhale the virus, but because you'll keep the air warm and moist that's in your nose. And therefore the immune system in your your mucosal pathways will be better. What do you think about all this, Paul?
2: It makes sense. I mean, you know, the it's, I think there's Mounting very good evidence that uh, humidity plays a role in these viruses' transmission, and it's a couple things. One is that it, when when it's cold and dry, the droplet nuclei can tend to shrink down and they stay suspended better. Yep. Um, and then uh, d- at the extremes of humidity, the virus survives better. Oddly, um, so it can either float in the air better or survive better depending on on, on what surfaces. that humidity is yep. and on surfaces. And so. In the summertime here where we, we kind of have that little bit higher relative humidity, those droplets plump up, drop to the ground a little a bit faster, and our nasal passages are, are a little bit better at clearing um, pathogens away because they're better equipped with mucus and ciliary function. And, and so uh, that's right. I will grant your listeners, though, that if they said the opposite, Uh, I might throw them a bone here because uh, we know that children, school kids are little nuclear reactors for influenza. They're like, (laughs) they're they're the thing that sort of drives it in the community. And when they're in school together, passing it around, there's something to that as well. So 20 seconds each.
0: What are you, have been your big takeaways so far with this pandemic? Chris, I know you'd like to give input.
2: Yeah. Takeaways.
1: That's tricky, isn't it? I I guess I would say um, stay tuned and be patient Uh, Information is changing rapidly. And despite what maybe our politicians or others say, let's stay out of the blame game and assume Mm -hmm. good intent and, and be patient with this pandemic because we are learning as we go. This is new territory.
0: And Paul?
2: You know, uh, just a a bit philosophical here, my mother-in-law, who's a very saintly woman, uh, likes to say faith and fear can't share the same vessel. So it's been a a little exercise in, in, you know, um, my faith to not uh, let sort of fears and anxieties kind of uh, take hold.
0: Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Paul, for being back with us. You're wonderful. Uh, Thanks for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you usually from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at redeemerradio.com forward slash doctor.
1: And like our listener, Amber, from the great city of Cincinnati, send us your questions. Tell us something you'd like to hear, something you'd like not to hear again. Uh, And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor.
0: This is Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.
0: Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.